please join me by turning in your Bible to John chapter 18. The Gospel of John, the 18th chapter. Now with your finger in that place, holding it for us to read in a moment, turn back to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Verse 31. The Lord has just commanded the apostles for staying with him, continuing with him in his temptations, verse 28, and his promise to them that they will have a kingdom appointed unto him by the Father that he would appoint to them, that there would come a day when they will eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and sitting in the place of judgment with him. In verse 31 then, he turns to Simon Peter, Luke 22:31, and he says these words, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan asked to have you. Literally that reads, demanded or actually obtained by demanding. He got what he asked, to sift you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I made supplication for you that your faith fail not and do you when once you have turned again establish your brethren and he said to him Lord with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death and he said I tell you Peter the cock shall not crow this day until you shall deny me or shall thrice deny that you know me now turn back to John 18 and follow as I begin to read with verse 12. John 18:12. So the band and the chief captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was he that gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known unto the high priest and entered in with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door without so the other disciple, who was known unto the high priest, went out and spoke to her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. The maid, therefore, that kept the door, says to Peter, Are you also one of this man's disciples? A, a better English rendering of that sentence would be, You are not one of his disciples too, are you? He says, I'm not. Now the servants, and the officers were standing there, having made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. 
And then they give the account of the Lord's treatment in the hall of Annas and is being bound and sent to Caiaphas. And we'll take up our reading again with verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said therefore to him, Are you also one of his disciples? And again, this is better rendered. You're not one of his disciples also, are you? He denied and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, being a kinsman of him whose ear Peter cut off, says, Did not I see you in the garden with him? Now this is a little different from you're not one of his, are you? This is the first two are rhetorical questions assuming a negative answer. They're they're just, uh, they're asking, but there's no chance you would be one of his disciples, would you? But this one's different. I saw you in the garden. I'm almost sure of it. You see the difference? That's the, the original ought to come out like that. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? You see, this is pointing a finger accusatory. Peter therefore denied again. And straightway, the cock crew. Please join me while we pray again. <clears throat> oh Lord, you know our need, and we know your greatness, though we don't know it as we ought. We pray that now your greatness and your grace would swallow up our need and fulfill it. Come, O oh Lord, and speak to your people. Help your servant. Uphold the weakness of flesh and mind and for the sake of the righteousness of our Lord Jesus, bless us in the ministry and in the receiving of your word, not for the sake of any good in us, but for Jesus' sake. Pour out now the liberty and the unction of your Holy Spirit upon us. O oh God, hear our cry as we bring this, we believe, righteous request, for the sake of him who promised that you would withhold no good thing from those of your children who ask. So give to us this request and more than we've asked, that Jesus may be magnified and your name honored increasingly here. Hear us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And what I'd like to do is sort of walk with you for a minute with some introductory thoughts about this whole setup and this whole scene. Last week we considered the arrest itself, these first 11 verses, and something of an introduction to the betrayal. But I'd like just to curse with you, if I could, through this passage, just to lay out some thoughts and then to spend the better part of our hour concentrating on this denial of Peter, of his Lord. The Lord Jesus, in chapters 14 through 16, and even as far back as chapter 13, has prepared his disciples for this hour of trial through preaching. Chapters 14 through 16 is a great discourse in which he equips them for the time soon to come in which he will be gone. You recall that his main motive in teaching them about the coming of the Holy Spirit was so that they may be prepared at the time of grief when he's departed that he's going to send another comforter, that they are not going to be left orphans. 
He has told others that the disciples were not fasting now because the bridegroom is with them. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then they'll fast. And what he meant was, there's coming a time when the followers of me are not going to have it easy. They're going to have to live by faith in such a way that often the very glories of God are greatly damned by the fog of this world. It's going to be hard and they're going to be characterized by a mingling of their rejoicing by faith and of their grieving that they can't see their master. There's going to come a time when fasting is appropriate for these guys, not while I'm here, but when I'm gone. And chapters 14 through 16 are the, the, the Lord's great answer to their need in preparing them for that departure. Knowing that it was time for him to depart out of the world, it says in chapter 13, the Lord loved his own till the end. And then he prepared them by telling them about the ministry of the Spirit that was to come. So by a sermon, he prepared them for the hour of trial. Then in chapter 17, and in Gethsemane, by a prayer, he prepared them and himself for the trial. The prayer in the garden of Gethsemane was much a prayer of the preparation of himself as he asked for strength to go through and take the cup and fully drink it to the dregs of the wrath of God. Chapter 17, you recall, he prayed for his own, for his apostles, after praying for himself and his glory, for the apostles and then for the church and for all of us. So by preaching and by prayer, he has prepared them and himself for this hour. One of the things we can draw from that, and one of the things that all of us who have followed the Lord for any time have learned, is that the Lord never does allow us to suffer righteously without preparing us ahead of time. He has never allowed his people to suffer righteously without first preparing them for it. Now you may think, I hadn't noticed Maybe you hadn't realized how well you're prepared for the suffering. First of all, you have not yet suffered unto shedding of blood. You have not resisted to that kind of trouble and persecution. You have had your trials. But the Lord has not only delivered you out of all of them, but he's always prepared you for them. Much of what you're hearing preached today, though we have no plan of what we preach to do such preparation, the Lord is using to prepare you for a future day. Much of the theology that you've heard taught in this pulpit that seemed at the time perhaps just to be theology, just the doctrines of God. What good does it do to me today, you may have asked. Uh, what, uh, what does this have to do with me? And Because we are emotional and we want things to fit our emotional perceptions, we often miss much of the standard foundational fundamental, basic teaching that's given to us because we don't see how it relates to us right now. But all of it is designed by the Master to provide for us preparation for the time we'll need it. And many of you hardly even realize how much you have found strength and comfort from old truths that have been beaten into your conscience over the years, pounded in, pounded in, and one day when the trouble came, without even knowing that it was a sermon or a collective, a group of sermons or daily Bible readings or devotional times that were helping you, you were able to retrieve the text of Scripture in your conscience that upheld you, that warned you, that comforted you, that gave you promise. Because the Lord always provides His people preparation for their trials. It's interesting, too, to note in the garden, 
We could wax poetic and talk a lot about the significance of a garden. You recall that it was in a garden that the first Adam fell by the serpent and his beguiling. It was in a garden that the Lord fought with that serpent in Gethsemane and prevailed. It is also in a garden that the Lord was buried and from which he triumphed over the devil by his resurrection. It's wonderful how the Lord seems to set these things beside each other and how beautifully artistic God is. We fell in a garden. We were delivered in a garden. One writer said you could spend time in your garden meditating on these things and every time you go out in your garden you could make it a means of grace to think back on what's happened for your soul with your soul and to your soul in gardens. Some would remind us of our Savior, of our sin. Every time you're in a garden, you ought to remember what happened to you in the first garden you were in. And every time you're in a garden, it would be good to remember what happened to you when the second Adam entered a garden on your behalf and again entered a garden in the tomb and came forth from it. But now let us consider, having just thought of those things, a feature of chapter 18 of John. One of the features, and we don't want to miss this as we analyze the various parts of the passage, don't forget in the first place that the predominant theme, or may we say the central figure of this passage, is none other than the Lord himself. The focus of the passage is on Christ, though much of the narrative deals with those surrounding him and their treatment of him. We must not lose our focus on the sufferings that are the central theme of this section of Scripture. The theme is Christ and His sufferings for our sin. Always remember that. And though this morning that itself is not the primary focus of our sermon, that still is the theme of this section of the Scripture. Keep that in mind. But one of the features of this chapter which focuses upon the Lord Jesus and His sufferings is that His friends are few while his enemies are many. Nothing stands out more starkly in this passage than the Lord Jesus having so few with him. We have Peter, who, if we understand literally the words of the other apostles in the synoptics, who said, I think it was Mark, that night they all fled and forsook him. He said, this night you're all going to be offended because of me. If we understand that literally to apply to all the twelve, or at least the eleven remaining after the betrayal, then Peter, and perhaps John, if he's this other disciple, after that momentary fleeing, then came back and joined with him. It's possible that John was not to be included in that general statement of all fleeing. It may be that John, if he's the other apostle, simply stayed right with him, followed them up because he was acquainted with the high priest, he had access into the house, and he joined them in there. And then Peter, following a bit further away, also stayed close enough to be somewhat involved in this event. But at any rate, the most we have are two disciples. The Lord's alone. Very few friends. Very many enemies. And the servant is not greater than his Lord. And we must also expect, if we're going to stand for righteousness, that the great majority of the world is not going to go with us. We must not be disillusioned when we are in the minority. God is still in the remnant business. 
It's a blessed thing to be counted one of the remnant. But it's very important that we not get delusions of grandeur thinking that it is our destiny to conquer this world in a majority movement of a revival of the Christian faith. God can do that. But I don't have confidence that that's the direction we're headed, nor do I have confidence that it is our duty to see that it happens, or do I believe we ought to get down in the mouth when it appears we're in the minority. We're not to judge success in God's kingdom by how many or how few seem to be standing with the truth. We long for everyone to join us and to march to Zion's gates with us and to go with us with the throng to give praise to God. But we do not get discouraged and despairing and give up and draw back from our diligence and faith because it appears that we've had a setback and we've lost some troops or it seems that God's people are in the few. It's the same as it was with the Lord. It is going to be the same with his servants. His, new, his enemies are numerous. His enemies are powerful. His enemies are official. The officers of the ecclesiastical power were against him. The officers of the civil authorities were against him. It was all against him. Brethren, the church of Christ, the true church of Christ that preaches the truth, lives the truth, stands up for the truth, thick or thin, is going to find that the general movement of the world, its powers, its government, its ecclesiology, is going to be against you. The powers that be in Christendom will stand opposed to true churches. The powers that be in the civil authorities are not moving in a direction, purpose, to enhance the gospel of Christ. They have their own purposes. And we must not be disillusioned when we see those purposes worked out and ourselves left either out in the dark or directly persecuted. There is no guarantee that the United States of America will always be a haven for saints of God. There are signs that in spite of all that we may do, there are an encroachment after encroachment upon our faith and the free exercise of it. That's not to be surprising to us. The world, even though our nation just did a noble thing and was used of God to do a great thing, the trend is not that our nation is now going to turn to Jesus, look to the churches of true biblical religion, and wait for counsel from us. That's not where we're headed, if I read it right. It may well be, in fact, that this whole victory could be reduced to God simply refusing to let any man become another Nebuchadnezzar. It could boil down to that, that God, when this man decided to rebuild the hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, and the scriptures say that that place will never be significantly inhabited again, and this man that was going to inhabit it and rebuild it and make it a glory in the earth, God simply, for the sake of his word in an Old Testament prophet, used America to stop it. That may be all that it is. That ought to humble us if that's all that it is. I would tell you this, whatever it is, it's in fulfillment with God's purpose and with God's plan. And all we are are his instruments in his purpose. We must understand that the world is going to stand against Christ and all those that stand with him. 
and all their powers and their civil authorities are going to oppose us. Dear brethren, we do not believe that it is the mandate of the church to become the civil authority. Nor do we believe that it is the right of the church or the work of the church to conquer all the authorities of the world so that they serve us. It is not the tendency in Scripture for us to expect that the world is so going to serve us. We're going to be among the few, among the minority, if we're going to be with the Lord, generally speaking. So here we look at the first Adam in this passage, hiding among the trees of the garden from God's face, and here the second Adam coming forth boldly among those trees and presenting himself for crucifixion. When they tried to force a crown on the Lord Jesus in chapter 6 of John, he withdrew himself from them and hid. When they bring a cross to him and a crown of thorns, he willingly follows and receives it. He understands the purposes of the kingdom of God and does not shrink back when externals seem to make it uncomfortable. We are called to suffering. And we are called to suffering when we cannot avoid it without sin. You're not supposed to try to suffer, but you know it's time to suffer when the only way to avoid it is to sin. Here the Lord walks into suffering because to do otherwise would be sin. There are going to be times when you may suffer wrongly and shouldn't submit to suffering, but you need to know that if in order to avoid suffering you have to sin, you must suffer. That's when you know you've been called to suffer. These men in the garden also, in terms of another thought, just to lay on you, remember how they fell backward when the Lord spoke to them? Some have tried to explain that by saying, well, what happened? The guy in front sort of was shocked and stumbled back, fell into the guy behind him, and they just sort of fell back. That's, that's one of the explanations of the experts. I don't think so. I mean, that we have a large company of men. You talk about a domino effect. That would be an, a, a, quite, a, quite an event. There is something more going on here. There is more than simply one fellow stumbling up front and 100, 200, 300 other fellows all falling down behind him one after the other. I, I have my doubts as to whether they were in single file anyway. How foolish men are to try to explain God's power. They fell backward. But you see, this is not a falling humbling. Humbling, they would have fallen forward. They would have fallen on their faces before him. They fell backward. And it brings to mind that text when the Lord said, Unto whomsoever, uh, or whosoever falls on this rock, speaking of himself, he shall be broken. But on to whomsoever this rock shall fall, he shall be ground to powder. Everyone has to fall before the Lord. You're either going to fall voluntarily forward onto your face in humble worship and adoration and obedience, or you're going to fall backwards under the power of his word. And remember what we said last time. If this gentle word of I am he knocked that crowd back, what is going to be the great word of judgment that comes out of the mouth of him who has the two-edged sword in the day of wrath going to do to the world. Well, having just walked through some of those thoughts, let me now focus your attention in the first place on a brief anatomy of the betrayal 
and then something of a description and some lessons to be drawn from the denial. Two of the things in this section of Scripture that highlight the Lord's suffering the most are the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Simon Peter. Look at this betrayal, just to characterize it. In the first place, it is shameless and bold in expression. Shameless and bold in expression. He walks up to his friend, he kisses him unblushingly. There is a shamelessness about this betrayal that adds burden to the Lord's sufferings. The reason I want you to see that <coughs> is that there's something of a contrast between this and Simon Peter. Simon Peter's denial is not of the same character as Judas' betrayal. Judas is shameless, giving away the Lord by plot and plan and kiss. Shameless. As we read in Jeremiah in a couple of passages, he speaks of the children of Israel who continue to sin and don't even blush. Who live in lewdness in the face of God and don't even blush. When you sin as a saint, when you fail the Lord, don't you blush? Aren't you ashamed? Don't you grieve? Judas, without shame, leads this band to give up the Lord. He has no sympathy for Christ. He sold him, he gives him up. Not only, though, is it shameless and bold in expression, it's cowardly and sinister in character. Chapter 13 of John says, just at the conclusion of that supper, Satan entered Judas, and he went out, for it was night. John has a wonderful way of describing scenes. In the last of the first century, the last of the writers of the Gospels, 60 some odd years after all this happened, John remembers details and brings out details. It was night. He remembers it and he paints that picture. Judas went out and it was night. And then Peter is warming his hands around the fire of the officers for it was cold. The place where Judas betrayed the Lord was a place of darkness. And remember what the Lord said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It was night. Sinister, in the shadows he creeps through the city. He secretly makes plans. He makes private deals behind closed doors. And he cowardly brings a troop of soldiers with him. He doesn't have the audacity to stand up to the Lord in his face. He plays this game. Just like his father the devil. Cowardly and sinister. Transforming himself into an angel of light. One of the things that struck our troops in this war. And one of the things that I saw right raising up the hackles on the backs of the necks of some of our generals was how cowardly were the leaders of the army of the Iraqis and how they forsook their troops. The first rule of battle is that the commanding officer never forsakes his troops. The troops are first. But the devil's not like that, nor his followers. The hireling flees when the wolf comes because he cares not for the flock. Cowardly and sinister in character. 
But notice, also this betrayal is greedy and self-serving in motive. Greed was at the root of this, 30 pieces of silver. I'm not going to get anything else from this guy. I at least ought to make a little money on his death. I'm going to get something for all these three years of dedication and sacrifice and following and, and uh, idealism. He's not satisfied my dreams. He's frustrated me. All this work I've done and look what I have to show for it. Where's my following? Where's the success of his ministry? I'm going to get out while the getting's good and I'm going to make a profit on this deal. Greedy, self-serving motive. He had been pilfering from the box. He was a thief. And he, in, the, in his final act of treachery, he did it for a piece of money. Now, why am I describing all this? I want you to understand when these kind of characteristics come up in your heart, whose company you're keeping. Notice in the fourth place also, this betrayal not only was shameless and bold in expression, cowardly and sinister in character, greedy and self-serving in motive, but it was disastrous and deadly in consequence. Psalm 109, don't turn, but Psalm 109 has a description of the fruit of this behavior in this man. Psalm 69 has something of a fruit of it. Psalm 109 is something of a prayer in the mouth of Messiah for God's judgment upon the one who betrays him. And it's a heart-rending, tragic and terrible description of the judgment that comes upon this man. You know the, the result of this. Acts chapter 1, Peter describes him as falling down headlong and his bowels gushing out. You know that he went out in his bitter grief and in his despair and he hanged himself. And apparently in his hanging of himself he actually came loose, the rope came loose, and he fell down headlong outside the, southern, the, the outskirts of the city and gushed and exploded on the ground below. Or, it's possible, as some have described it, that he hanged there for a while and later on when they cut him down, he fell and the bloated body of this betrayer blew up down on the rocks. Now that's the way the Bible lets us in on the description of what happened. Simon Peter describes that. His bowels gushed out. You read that and you just want to pass on. I love the Hebrews' earthiness and their straightforwardness. They're not as fastidious as we Americans are and I wish we could learn a little bit more about that kind of of upfront uh, uh, honesty that they had. But Peter describes this man's end. You know what happened. He went out and hanged himself. He cast the 30 pieces of silver down before the feet of the officers and said, I have betrayed innocent blood and went out and killed himself. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means anybody who hangs Jesus in his heart hangs himself. It means that this kind of character and this kind of treatment of Christ destroys the one that does it. It always results that way. What's in his heart is finally revealed by the end. You see, the man that fails Christ but repents, he grieves over his sin, but he doesn't go into despair and end it. The wicked kill themselves. The righteous save themselves. The gospel doesn't ask you to beat yourself down so that you stay there. The gospel doesn't call men to walk in a perpetual self, self, boy, I'm going to get used to these glasses, self-denigration. 
The Gospel calls upon men to grieve, to humble themselves, to loathe themselves, so that, in the words of Peter, they may save themselves from this untoward and crooked generation. There are some who so pervert the Gospel that they're afraid they're being selfish to ask God to save them. Afraid it's selfish to ask for a blessing. Afraid it's selfish to ask for forgiveness. This sin is so bad I don't have a right for forgiveness. You may not have a right, but you've got a need. And you have a promise upon it. Don't twist this into an Americanized, suicidal, psychotic kind of mentality that you refuse to be comforted, you refuse blessing. When the gospel says, turn and be healed, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as wool. There is no sin from which a man repenting will not be forgiven. You say, what about the unpardonable sin? I don't have time to explain that. But it fits in with what I said, and I didn't contradict the meaning of it. There's no sin that you have a right to refuse to forgive when God is willing to forgive it. When the blood of Christ covers it, you must not expose it again. This man's character was revealed, though. The act of this suicide is proof of an unrepentant heart. Suicide doesn't solve it. Suicide does not let you escape from the so-called pain of this life. It lets you go into the greater pain of the one to come. Suicide is no solution. I wish some of the psychiatrists would send people to us and just let us spend some years with them and teach them. I'll tell you, we could heal a lot of people's problems. If they grow up, I'm not, I'm not equating myself with a doctor, don't misunderstand that. But it's the absence of the gospel in their conscience that allows men to solve their problems by killing themselves. But understand this. This man did not plan to kill himself. That was not his plot. He did not intend to kill himself. But that was the result of this sordid act. What happens to your conscience, what happens to your mind when you sin this way, is a dreadful thing. The consequences of this kind of betrayal are of most serious terror and horror. Don't you play around with the Lord and his name. Don't you betray Christ. If the persecution comes, don't you sell out so you can save your neck. That'll be the first thing that'll go. You save your neck now, you'll lose it later. But in the final thing in regarding this betrayal, Notice not only is it disastrous and deadly in consequence, but it's drastic and shocking in its condescension. And when I, I use the word condescension because I couldn't think of a better one. He started way up here. Look how far down he ended. Here's the fellow who is seen here standing with them who are opposing Christ. Here is a man that had from the having power over demons, if you're familiar with Mark chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord sent Judas out among those who went out and cast out demons. He had power over demons. Now he's cooperating with demons. He is standing with the devil himself and his crowd. Satan has entered this man who at one time was casting Satan out. Here's a man who had come from a ministry of healing and miracle working, 
among those that were sent out with that power, now he's inflicting torment on his own Savior. Here's a man who had been a preacher of truth and now he's a partner of liars. How far down can a defiled conscience fall? Surely privileges misused blind and bludgeon the conscience. See what happened here. This man was at the highest place of privilege. He was in the best kind of company and he was doing the highest form of ministry and work and was in the inner circle of the favored. And from that lofty place he ended up hanging himself on a tree outside the city of Jerusalem in utter despair, having completely betrayed the Lord Jesus himself. You say, yeah, yeah, that's really terrible, isn't it? I'm telling you that because that's what can happen to a conscience that becomes defiled in the beginning of little compromises. When was the first time Judas took a little bit out of the offering and justified it by noting to follow Jesus doesn't get paid very much. I'm noticing that these foxes that have holes and these birds that have nests are doing better than we disciples. Surely it's only fair that I take my cut. When did he first let his conscience go with that little movement? I tell you, brethren, every one of us is continually vulnerable to such a move. And just about the time you think you're not, is when you're going to begin to feel desires that you hadn't felt for years. You watch yourself. Be careful when you pray for others' sins that you don't forget they are your sins as well. God knows how to humble people. He knows how to show you what you really are. The same fire that melts wax hardens clay. One man responds to the dealings of God in one way. Another man turns those things into a complete different result. Don't rest on your knowledge of God. Knowledge puffs up. Don't rest on your privileges. God's given you benefits and privileges. That's no guarantee you're in and going to stay in. Don't rest on your associations. Judas couldn't have picked a more righteous crowd in companionship. You're in a good church. Not a sinless church, but a sound and decent church. Don't rest on that. What does that make you? It makes you blessed and privileged. It makes you be vulnerable to the means of grace. It makes you helped. It makes you have all sorts of warnings and preventatives in your life, but it doesn't guarantee that you're not about to fall. This man went from the highest to the depths. Don't exult in your present well-being. Things going well? You're, you haven't denied the Lord? Beware. Drastic condescension from the highest privilege and ministry to the most sordid and vain and vile behavior. That's something of an anatomy of this betrayal. But now look with me in the remaining minutes to the denial of Peter which if the betrayal of Judas did not break the heart of Christ this denial must have grieved him deeply first remember that he started this process as we read in Luke chapter 22 following afar off I think that's good language 
See, there, some of you may be following the Lord, but the way you're following him could be described as far off. You, you've got yourself in this neat position of fence riding. And it's not much trouble for you between Sunday night when you're leaning on this side of the fence and Monday morning when you lean to the other side. It doesn't take much movement for you to adapt and adjust to the situation. You stand for Jesus among us. You forget he exists among them. They wouldn't know you were a Christian if they had a trial and brought out all the evidence. There wouldn't be enough to convict you. You've learned to juggle your convictions so that when you're with us, you fit. You say all the right things. When you're with them, they have not the faintest clue what you stand for or what makes you what you are. Your job's too important. You're afraid to make mention. You've sacrificed. You've humbled. You've not humbled yourself. You've compromised yourself. I'm not again suggesting that you become a fool. But I am suggesting that it begins by following Jesus afar off. You still consider yourself a disciple. If somebody said, are you a Christian? You might say, well, I, yeah, I've never denied Christ. I'm not, I'm not doing the bad stuff. But you're still at a distance. That convenient distance that in case the fire is turned up, you can get away. That's where it started. Then, the next scene is you see this man warming himself at a fire while Jesus is being abused just above him in the court of Annas. While the Lord's abused, Peter's warming himself at the fire of the officers of the court. And then you see him denying the Lord three times. I want to make a note. You remember the Lord Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him three times. And you remember what Peter's expectation was. Not, nothing could be further from the truth. There's no chance. He rebuked the Lord. He was good at that. He rebuked the Lord for planning to be crucified. Now he rebukes the Lord for telling him his heart. What does that teach you? Let me tell you what it teaches you. You don't know your heart. You don't know it. Don't say, I know my heart. You don't know. And when the Lord, through some legitimate means of his word, ministering to you, warns you about your propensity to sin, do not fluff it off by saying, well, that's not my problem. Lord, I'll go with you to prison and to death. Vehemently, it says in the scripture. He protested. The Lord said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows to dawn. The Lord knew him better than he knew him. Peter didn't know Peter. Jesus knew Peter. Well, let me draw out some points from this and analyze the denial. First of all, no one is exempt from such a deed. No one is exempt from denying Jesus Christ. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Every time it wells up in your subconscious that you're beginning to get beyond the temptation of doing the drastic sin, stop it. Rebuke the thought and take heed. Take heed to yourselves. Brethren, very seldom does it all come crashing in at once. 
Very seldom does it happen the way it happened to Peter. In an unsuspecting way, just it's all there and out you go. Usually it's little ways, little things, one at a time, one at a time. The softening of this part of the conscience. The decision to make a major decision without counsel in this instance. Surely nobody will mind in this instance. If I don't, if I wait for counsel, the deal will be passed and I won't. You start moving in that direction, it reveals a problem in your pride. You see, one of the things the multitude of counselors and that practice of seeking them does, it keeps you humble. The very act of asking for counsel when you think you already know everything is an act of humility. Even though you do know everything, it's always safer to run it by some others who don't know what you know. I've had people actually tell me that, who are you as a pastor to talk to me about finances? I'm a bank teller. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I don't know who uh, Solomon was. I don't know who David was. I don't know who Jesus was. I don't know who Peter and Paul were and John were to tell people about finances. I don't know of any of them that ever worked for a bank. I don't know of any of them were that were accountants. You be careful that you don't set yourself up as an expert in some area and in this area you don't need counsel. You be careful. Sometimes you can learn more from your children than you can learn from an expert. Nobody's exempt from such a deed. This was the most committed disciple, if words mean anything, and yet he's not beyond temptation. Notice also here that often you can deduce or you can see this kind of deed developing by the relative rashness of the perpetrator. Often, this kind of denial is accompanied by rashness of character. Peter is rash to defend. He's the guy that just a few little while ago took a sword out and tried to kill a guy and start a riot and resist the power, right? The same guy now that, I never knew the guy. And in one passage, he actually cursed finally, vehemently with profanity, saying, but off. I don't know who you're talking about. I've never met the man. There's a rash character here, impulsive. Beware of the guy that brags on his dedication to Jesus. Beware of yourself if you think how committed you are. Oh, Lord, did you see the character? I'll go with you to the death. He meant it. But he's wrong. It's often accompanied by this kind of rashness. Instability may often be discerned in a reckless haste. The guy that just runs here and jumps on this is often revealing an unstable character. You can't very well build your life's plans around such a character. Children don't need to grow up in a home where a daddy can't keep, his, can't keep a steady decision path in his life. This happens and daddy's running off here and he's selling the house this week and he's buying two new motorcycles next week and he's emptying the bank account this week and he's canceling out contracts this week and he's friends over here and next week and you build complete instability in children. Dear brethren, much of that's what's going on in our society with our kids. We've got young men in their 20s and 30s and 40s in this culture who have no conception of who they are, 
They live by their belly and their emotions, and they, they make 180-degree turns of decisions overnight, and they leave their kids not knowing where they stand with anything. Don't build your life around that kind of hasty, rash behavior. He that believes shall not make haste, the Scripture says. There's a sense of stability and proper planning and patience in the mind of a stable man. God has built in restraints from these kinds of actions. Get counsel. Take your time. You, anything can wait. Build that kind of stability. Don't let your emotions fly off and run here and then fly back and run here. Pretty soon people will quit listening to you. Something happens and you panic. Something else happens and you become euphoric. I've really admired President Bush in this thing. I, after this thing was over, they were criticizing him for not being excited enough. And I admired it. I want my president to have a little more stability than that. I'm glad he wasn't going, hey, this is the greatest thing. There's a lot more problems we've got to address. We need a leader that's got control. We need somebody that's not gone aside with the emotions. I always like the football coach that when they score a touchdown, you see him over there. Everybody's piling up in the end zone. He's over here looking at the next play. He's looking at his computer printout. Some of the greatest coaches in history were that kind of man. They didn't get caught up in all this. Their job is something beyond that. They have to make the next decision. Who's going to make the next decision? Well, it's important that we see character. Here's a rash man. He's rash on one end and he's rash on the other. A man that is capable of that kind of undying devotion is also capable of copping out. So don't get to thinking too highly of yourself if you're one given to great emotional outbursts. Now notice, we're not questioning Peter's motives. Judas had a motive. Judas had a plan. Judas was a greedy man. Judas was a frustrated man. Peter is scared. Peter, under the heat of pressure of fear, thinks out. Judas premeditatedly betrayed Christ. There's a great difference. I don't mean for you to be sympathetic with your denials of Christ, but I do want you to be at least, if we could use it, sympathetic with yourself in this way. There are a lot of people that have failed the Lord under pressure who came back to serve Him and fight another day. I don't say that to minimize the seriousness, but I say it to help you. But you see, the motive is not what we're questioning. But notice what he did. First of all, he had no warrant from Christ for his action. What do you mean? Well, you remember what he did when he raised the sword? He didn't have the command of Christ to do that. He jumped ahead. He decided to resist the powers that, exist, that be, and he jumped ahead. He ran ahead of God. He saw a great cause. He's going to serve like Moses. I'm going to rise up and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he kills an Egyptian who's fighting with his brethren. The people of Israel just weren't ready yet to be led. A wise leader reads his people and he doesn't force them on beyond where they're able and ready to go. He calculates their gifts and he leads them accordingly. He keeps abreast of the condition of his flocks so that he doesn't drive them further than they can drive before they stop for water. He knows the shape of those under his charge. 
Here's Peter running ahead of God. He has no warrant from Christ for his action. If your cause is good and your call is clear, then you go. But if your cause is not good or the call is not clear, you stay. Unless the Lord has given you commandment, you be careful doing him favors. Peter's been acting this way. He's not thinking of the commandments of Christ. Now you see, that's what he does in the garden. He goes ahead of God and tries to start a fight. It's that same character that fails to fight with his mouth later. He takes the wrong sword in the garden and leaves out the right one in the courtyard. The sword of the Spirit. He failed. It's amazing to me in our society in the theology, in the, I think perhaps one of the most dangerous theologies developing today, and maybe one that's going to sweep many people behind it. It's pro- I believe it may well go way beyond what the charismatic movement has done. It's the theonomy movement. And this view that, that it is the church's mandate under Christ, that Christ has to be given dominion over all the institutions of the world, and that it is our goal to bring in gospel rule throughout the world. Now, there are various shades and uh, approaches and understandings and applications, some of the most incredible fancy and some much more palatable. But one of the great problems here is that men are taking often in these movements the wrong sword and they're fighting the wrong enemy on the wrong terms for the wrong reasons. And we must learn from it. I think this is a good example. Peter's ready to fight for Jesus, but he doesn't fight correctly. Second, not only did he not have warrant, he left his own place. What do I mean by that? Well, the Lord has taught us not to resist the powers that be, not to rise up and revolt against the existing governments. Peter was ready to revolt personally as a vigilante with swords against the existing authorities. That's what that sword was all about. He left his place and he resisted the power. The Lord says, put up your sword. He that takes the sword, we read in the parallel passage, will perish with the sword. Revelation has an interesting passage here. It's in the middle of one of those difficult sections on the beast. And at the conclusion of that passage, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. And what it says just before that is, He that is in favor of captivity will go to captivity. He that wants to take the sword will perish with the sword. Here's the patience of the saints. The Lord has taught us that if the saints of God think they're going to bring in the kingdom of God with the sword of man, they're going to end up dying by the sword of man. You want to fight physical war? You're going to die a physical fight. Not death. You want to use their weaponry? You're going to be subject to their chicanery. Use weapons that work. Mighty to the bringing down of strongholds. The ones God's given us. Don't leave them lying rusty on the shelf and resort to fleshly weapons. He left his place. He resisted the power. And he becomes vulnerable. The Lord says it. He that takes the sword will perish with the sword. Peter, I can't protect you. If you start this kind of fighting, you may get your head cut off. You fight my fight, I'll take care of your head. You'll step on scorpions and snakes doing what I tell you to do and they won't hurt you. You'll go throughout the world and until I'm finished with you, nobody can harm you if you're doing what I'm sending you to do. 
But if you decide to make the military your means of bringing in the kingdom of God, you'll probably get killed in a military battle somewhere. That's what Josiah did. Fought a battle God didn't send me to fight and died too soon. Let's be careful. He also forgot the purpose of this hour. Here's, Je- here's Peter, fighting for Jesus. But in fighting for Jesus, he's fighting against Jesus. He's raising up a sword. Now I'm comparing this sword in the garden with this denial in the court. <coughs> he's fighting for Jesus and opposing him. Listen to what Calvin says. It was exceedingly thoughtless in Peter to try to prove his faith by the sword, while he could not do so by his tongue. When he's called to make confession, he denies. But now, unbidden by his master, he raises a riot. Warned by such a striking example, let us learn to moderate our zeal. And as the wantonness of our flesh ever itches to dare more than God commands, Let us learn that our zeal will turn out badly whenever we dare to undertake anything beyond God's word. Peter was not only away from God's word, he forgot the whole purpose of this hour. Now we're not trying to be, I don't want to be too hard on him. I want to analyze this though and help you see what character leads up to a denial. This man's zeal is misplaced, and that's why in the time of real pressure he doesn't know how to stand properly. It also exposes an inconsistency in the man. Some people are only in favor of fighting for Jesus when it looks like he has a chance of winning. And as soon as the tide turns against him, they think out. Peter is expecting here in the garden that they're going to rise up. He just sees what Jesus is able to do with his mouth. I am he, they all fall down. Oh, ha, ha, ha. And he starts getting a hand on the sword. They come touch Jesus. He says, all right, this must be the time. Out comes the sword. We're going to get him surely now. That's what's going on. He fully expects to win this thing. That's what I believe. There is zeal, there is thoughtlessness, there is rashness, but I believe he expects the Lord to join right with him, and off we go, and we're going to have a great victory here. Not so. The Lord gets arrested. The Lord has frustrated him and said, put that up. And I believe that that's a part of the psychological development of his later denial. I think he's confused, he's frustrated, and he's a little upset with Jesus. I could have helped you. He's not finished with him because he keeps following, but he's all mixed up. He's disillusioned. All of them were disillusioned. They were offended at him this night. The Messiah, the son of David, is not supposed to be arrested. And here he is letting them take him and he could stop it. We could help him. Come on, Lord, at least go down fighting. This was a frustrated disciple. And he's setting himself up for denying his Lord. What does that do to apply to us? I'll tell you. You're not to stand for Jesus just when it's a time of apparent blessing and when the church is growing and when things look good. You stand for Jesus when it looks like he's all alone and there's not any benefit in it because nothing's changed. The cause is the same. The truth is the same. And the demands of discipleship are the same. Don't be a fair-weather friend raising a sword when it looks like you're on the right side But see, the scriptures teach us that it's 
the right side is not always the rising side. Sometimes the right side is the declining side. Sometimes blessing is preceded by cleansing. He revealed a woeful lack of humility in this act. He didn't properly assess himself. That's what humility is. It's not putting yourself down. It's seeing yourself for what you really are and properly assessing yourself. Let not a man think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Let him think soberly. Sane judgment. The Lord knew Peter. Peter didn't know Peter. Peter thought he was bigger than he was. He thought he was invulnerable. He would never deny the Lord. And God always teaches us a lesson out of that. You want to protect yourself from folly? Always assume you're capable of it. And that'll go a long way to preventing it. Always know that you are capable of the vilest kind of folly. We preachers, we become experts in certain subject matter. We, you know, we preach a series of sermons. And so you think, if we preached it and we know it, we've memorized it, we're not, that one we've conquered. I find in my own life, Often, right after I've finished a series on some particular subject of Christian life, when I ought to be more uh, resistant and more uh, defensible against it than any other time, it's when in my own heart I start conjuring up all sorts of thoughts and sins and problems and temptations. Don't get pr presumptuous. Don't say, well, Pastor Allen taught at this church on finance. He's even been to a couple of family conferences on this stuff. And we are, this church really knows about this. We're not going to be caught in covetousness. I've already been through that fight. Over and over again, I expect to go through it. In fact, I would imagine that at the very point at which we become known, we're going to be attacked. If we become known as an Orthodox church, the devil's going to work on our theology. If we become known as a Sabbath-keeping church, he's going to soften our convictions at that point if he can. If we become known as a church that knows the Bible doctrine of finances, he's going to start checking us out in our covenant level. I mean, our, our coveting level. Take my word for it, brethren. You're not invulnerable. This thing can happen to anybody. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a dreadfully serious thing also. You say, well, it's not too serious. Peter got out of it. Let me tell you what it cost him to get out of this. He denied Jesus before men. The Lord says, you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. This man was on the brink of eternal disaster. He grieved the Lord. Look what it did to Christ. It broke his heart. It shames him when we do it. Look what it did to Peter. Look what it does to us when we deny the Lord. If you don't repent, it will destroy you. But even if you do, by grace, like Peter, repent. Even if God is merciful and gives you a broken heart over your shameless denial, it nevertheless produces an awful pain and sorrow that you may never forget. He went out and wept bitterly after this. Don't pass over that quickly. Soak that in. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, the Lord Jesus has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection from the dead. I have no question that part of that picture in Peter's mind was those dark two and a half, three days that he spent having this event on his conscience. 
And then they, Jesus, remember, said, Go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm alive. I mean, he singled the guy out. You've got to remember what must have been going through Peter's mind all weekend. This guy has gone out and wept bitterly. He has failed. He thought of himself as the one man who would never fail, and now he has failed. He's the one that's failed more than any. How low do you get when you blow it? Have you been there? If you've blown it, I hope you've been there. I hope it made you low. Sometimes you say the words. I mean... We parents, how many times we've broken our own hearts by our rude treatment to our children. We lash out at a child that's beloved and tender and looking to us for guidance and provision, and because he interrupts us reading the paper, ah, back off! Or something even less than that. And how often has it happened to me that negligence or a quick, hard answer to my wife or my kids, and my what happens to me after that? It costs me. All the agony of that, the grief of that, and having to go through all that process of getting myself back so I can go apologize and get it straight, and then wondering, why do I ever emote my mouth? You see, one of the things this kind of behavior does, it kills your confidence. It kills your boldness. It cripples your praying. It'll, it'll decapitate you for a time. This is serious business. Don't let yourself get to this. Beware those things that lead up to this. Warming yourself in the camp of the enemy. Hanging out with the wrong crowd because you think you can handle it. In an hour that you least expect it, they're going to turn on you and they're going to charge you and they're going to have you and they're going to demand of you a stance that you may be unable or unwilling to take. You beware. John's doing a favor to Peter. He gets him inside. And when he gets him inside, Peter gets up close to the fire. And then the taunts begin. Broke him up. What a delight it was for him when the Lord came back and did not destroy him, but rose from the dead in saving mercy. Oh, he's begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of the dead. I say to you that have been vulnerable to sinning against Christ and grieving the spirit who thought you were bigger than you are and it's this, perhaps even being in this church has been a disillusioning thing for you. I believe it, it for many people that's the case. When they come under this kind of preaching, and I'm not talking about ours uniquely, but the kind that we do, the doctrines that we preach. A lot of people that come to this church or churches like this one with a lot of evangelical confidence one of the first, first things that happens is for a couple of years they get all mixed up. Their confidence just goes down to the drain. They lose all their confidence and they, they don't know who they are. And they get all confused. They thought they were committed and then they find out when they compare themselves to some other things that they didn't know what they thought they knew. One of the comments I hear most frequently, Pastor, I, I'm, I don't know anything. I thought when I came here that I was going to correct you. I've heard that. Why is that? Well, God is gracious to straighten us out when we start strutting around in our self-confidence and our knowledge. And sometimes we come under a ministry that's a, a bit more thoroughly biblical than perhaps we were in before, and we begin to see something about ourselves that's disillusioning, and it's hard to take. What kind of man am I? One of the things that happens sometimes to Christians, God lets them fall into sin to teach them 
what they really are and what they're capable of. Now, how many times do you want God to have to do that? I tell you, there will come a time when he may leave you there. It's a serious business. Don't stay flirting at the distance. Don't stay following Christ from afar and warming your hands around the fires of the ungodly. Keep away from that. Keep yourself away from the temptation. You say, Pastor, I can control it. Oh, I hate to hear that. You can't control it. That's the point. This guy had could control it. This was the strongest, most virulent of the apostles. He blew it. You don't know what the devil can do, and you don't know what God can do to teach you a lesson of humility. The development of this thing is subtle. A little maiden. I mean, what's he going to... He's scared of this girl? You're not one of them, are you? Nope. Honey. But it increases. The crescendo. Another. You're not one of them. And then finally, they, in one of the synoptics, they began to ask him, are you one of them too? And one of them says, I saw you in the garden. And as it comes up, he finally loses control, utterly denies Christ. Watch out. But I want to conclude by saying something else. And I think I've not probed real deeply. I've not been extremely personal. I've not tried to cite a lot of instances in our own lives where this might be the case. I trust that your conscience and the Spirit of God is helping you with that. But I do need to finish by saying, not only is this sin something that all of us are capable of, and not only is it a thing of dreadful seriousness, but such a sin is not unforgivable. Denying the Lord, like Peter did, is not unforgivable. Now, we said it earlier, but I want you to think about it. That's the big difference between Judas and Peter. It's a gracious thing to watch how the Lord deals with this fellow. This was a timely temptation for this proud and brash Peter. He was never going to be able to serve Christ as an effective apostle with his confidence in himself. The apostle Paul had the same problem. He was allowed the privilege of going into the third heaven in the presence of the throne room of God and seeing things he wasn't even allowed to tell us. And then what does he say? He says, but because of the exceeding majesty and greatness of those revelations, the God sent me a thorn in the flesh so I wouldn't get puffed up. Because God gave him extra privileges, he knew Pete Paul was vulnerable to being extra proud. So God sent him some trouble that kept reminding him of his weaknesses. So he says, I glory not in my strengths, but in my weaknesses. Because in those is where Christ is made great. Don't you... Don't you spend the rest of your life, you young, robust young men and women who are scared of suffering and afraid of pain and afraid of sickness. Don't spend the rest of your life praying, Lord, keep me away from that. Don't let that happen. You're gonna, it's going to happen before you die one way or the other, folks. So don't live your life scared of that. Ask that God keep you away from the sin associated with those things. Ask him that he keep you true and use those things to purify you and make you holy. Grow up in your prayers. Don't be so fleshly minded that you're afraid of, of the problems that God brings into your life. Gracious, timely temptations that God allows on this man to bring him down so God can raise him up. 
This crushing of Peter's self-confidence was the preparation for Peter's great bold sermon on the day of Pentecost. He didn't preach in his cocky self-confidence on the day of Pentecost. He preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. We were talking before we came out this morning in the elders. It's every time we preach, before we come out, we utterly have the sense of complete ill-preparedness and total inability. It, it never fails me. Just complete collapse uh, emotionally before we come out to preach. This sense that, Lord, I, don't, I can't do it. I don't know what to do. I don't even know if this sermon is worth preaching. I'd rather not even do it. If you could just speak in my place, I'll be glad. That's the sense that comes over us. How thankful we are that that keeps coming over us. You pray we'll never walk into this place thinking, ah, we've got it together this week. You pray that God won't let that happen to us because as soon as we begin to have confidence in our preaching, you'll start seeing our preaching not deal with your souls. Here's a man that God graciously brought down. But notice how God also timely, as soon as he denied him for the third time at Rooster Crow. In Mark, Rooster Crow twice. Not a contradiction. Mark just records an extra crowing that John leaves out. Peter is in the midst of his denial. He's denied once in the rooster crows. What did that do to him? Remember what the word see before the he denies it in the rooster crows. It's like the Lord is sending him a reminder and a warning. Now, hey, wait! Remember about that rooster? You deny, and there's Peter working through all this stuff. Doesn't the Lord do that with you when you start going down the road of denying? Doesn't he bring little conscience prickers to bug you? Somebody. How many of you daddies have had your four-year-old be God's little crow? His little rooster. You ever had that happen? I'm not going to get specific. Thank God for those little roosters. But Peter ignored that first one. And he went on. He went right back to that crowd warming by the fire. He got himself right in the place of temptation again. Quite a confident fellow. And then as soon as he finished the third denial, the rooster crows. What a gracious thing. We also read in another that at that, about that time, the Lord, apparently being brought through the courtyard from Annas and taking, being taken on to Caiaphas, looks at him. I would not presume to describe how he looked at him. But it was then that Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see God's, God's work in this. He sees the fellow. The devil has said, I want this guy. And the devil has gotten permission to sift you a sweet, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. His courage failed, but his faith didn't. He broke down under the heat of battle and he sinned. And he did a wretched thing. And God used that to humble him and prepare him for a greater work. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God and the mercy of God. Peter was forgiven and given a ministry and later was able to stand in the very same crowd that he was afraid of today. He told them, you with wicked hands killed Christ. Not many days after this. God used all of this to bring about the man's humbling. Now, where have you been drifting toward warming your hands in the fire of the wicked and putting yourself in the place of being tempted at some crucial moment of denying Christ or compromising? 
Where have you been playing with compromise so as you could get along with the world and not pay the price of being a Christian? I tell you, don't think you can continue to handle that and juggle that. You're setting yourself up for a great sin. Right now it's secret. Nobody knows what you're doing but you and God. But God will bring it out and expose it. Unless you do. You get rid of it. You rebuke yourself. You learn from this great passage and this account of Peter's denial. You stay away from the places that tempt you. You stay away from the people that bring you down. You stay away from the pride that thinks you can handle things without a counsel of wiser men. You stay away from that mentality and you'll stay away from this kind of serious sin. But I have to address myself in closing to you who've already blown it. Either by keeping your mouth shut when you should have said something, or by speaking up when you shouldn't have, or by playing games with your pocketbook or whatever else. Not giving to God what was coming to God and justifying it by your own conscience, who has learned all sorts of justifying and rationalizing skills. Great, get great comfort and encouragement from Simon Peter, who denied Jesus Christ at the hour when to defend him would have perhaps set some wheels in motion. He would not even recognize he knew him, and he had blood on his hands. God forgave him and used him, because in his weeping bitterly, he wasn't in suicidal despair, which is proved by the outcome. But he broke down and humbled himself, and God had mercy on him. God gives grace to the humble. You blown it? Don't you now decide that God cannot use you anymore? Don't tell God that it's too late because you've done too much. John Bunyan struggled with that. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners, Bunyan's autobiography of how he struggled for years with assurance. And one of the things that kept plaguing him was that he had remembered verbally denying the Lord. And he kept thinking that must have been the unpardonable sin and it really kept nagging him for years. That's how serious it is. It cost him years. But I tell you, God is not beyond forgiving those who come to him and confess their sins. You blew it. Bring it open to God. He that confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. He that covers his sin will not prosper. May God give us grace to be warned by the example of a failing disciple and to be greatly encouraged by the example of a gracious God. Dear men, my heart, is, my heart longs for you men, you young men who have the devil sifting you as wheat. I know. My heart would love to stand with you by your side in the workplace every day and just elbow you just elbow you God don't look at this don't listen to that don't get mad cool it wait on God I can't do that I'd like for some of you to stand by me in my study and do the same thing to me but the Lord Jesus will be with you you humble yourself and continue to cry for grace and he'll be with you. And if you've already fallen to the devil's wiles and you've already blown it, don't therefore say, well, I'm of no use to God. Some of his greatest servants have been men who have denied him the most. Witness Simon Peter. May God give us grace to lay claim on his mercies. Let us bow together.
Our Father, in our physical weakness, we have attempted to be faithful to your word and know that we have left much undone. We ask you in mercy to take up the slack, and we give you thanks that while the devil rattles us and shakes us and sifts us as wheat in all of his anger, and while he means it's for evil, we have one sitting at your right hand who prays for us. Oh, Lord, what an encouraging word, what a thrilling thought that you, anticipating the devil's wiles while we are in this pilgrim land, have prayed for us that our faith fail not. Now help us along with him that we may strengthen our brethren. Oh, God, our Father, keep us from the presumption that leads us to falling and keep us from the despair that keeps us from rising. Give us help and mercy and make men and women of the gospel out of us and keep us from denying you Lord guard us that we not bring shame and grief to you hear us we pray and we ask that you would spare no part of our hearts in searching us and making us to speak truth in the inner man hear our prayer and receive our great thanks for Jesus for we ask it in his name Amen